Numbers 21, the children of Israel are no longer wandering. In fact, they begin marching. Not wanderers, not wimpy, they begin to march. Verse 1. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. Now I think God liked that. Israel is finally getting a, a little you know, strength here. And also, look at what they're doing. They're saying, we want to rescue. We want to save. If you'll deliver this people into my hand, I will wipe out those who come against you. I think we could have the same attitude in evangelism. Oh God, if you will deliver this people into the name of Jesus Christ, we will storm the gates of hell for you. And so the Lord responds. Verse 3 says, says, The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them, them and their cities. Thus the name of the place, watch this, was called Hormah. Do you remember Hormah? Back in Numbers 14, verse 45, that was where Israel was destroyed when they presumptively tried to go on into the Promised Land without God. They were driven all the way back to Hormah, which means destruction. And it was their destruction because they were presumptive. Now, 40 years later, in the exact same place, God gives them victory. That's cool. God turns the whole thing around, makes good out of it. And now, now the people are starting to march. What goes around comes around, and now Israel is is victorious. And I think victory does something to a person. Once you've won one game, you think, I could do this again. And you win another and another. Once one battle is fought and won, there is strength that comes with that. God gives them the battle. I, by the way, I think they could have had it when they came up against Edom. But they were still wimping around, so they went around Edom. I think that probably was a good place for them to stand in the Lord and take on. And had they fought that battle, they would have been stronger for the next. And they probably wouldn't have had anybody captured by the Canaanites. However, at this point, they are starting to get somewhere. Now, Israel is on the move. Verse 4. And they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The word impatient is also translated discouraged. Again, if they had stood up to Edom and gone straight on through the way I believe the Lord was leading them, they wouldn't have gotten discouraged. But they went the long way, the safe way. And they began to get bummed out. And the people spoke again, verse 5, against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water. And we loathe this miserable food. Two steps forward, three steps back. They have victory. And now they're starting to backpedal. Anybody ever done that? When you come to victory in the Lord Jesus? You overcome some fantastic thing. He heals you. He, he changes you. And then the very next day you find yourself doing just something stupid. Well, you and Israel. <laughs> it says that they cried out against God and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness where there is no food, there is no water, and we loathe this miserable food. What miserable food, manna? We are sick to death of bread from heaven. Gang, I have heard this. I have heard this from people who say I'm tired of Bible study. I'm sick of this food. I'm full of this food. I don't need this food. I want to go out and do things. I want to experience things. And God's saying, 
You would despise the daily bread? You would reject the bread from heaven? Gang, the only reason why Bible study is ever heavy or difficult is hard is because our hearts are not able to receive it. When our hearts are open and we're asking the Spirit to teach us, guess what? This thing feeds. God's Word, it's awesome. And it fills us and it strengthens us and you don't get too full of God's Word. You can't. So here they are whining against their daily bread. Man, you know, week in and week out here on Wednesday nights, we could show DVDs, we could program, we could have some you know, special kind of things going on. A lot of churches do. A lot of churches will see attendance wane on a certain program, and so they stir it up. More program, more program, more program. That's what we need. And I maintain what we need is to stay faithful to the teaching of the Word of God. And we will. I was walking here tonight. I said, Lord, if there are three people that show up tonight, man, would you bless us? God, would you fill us up? And I don't know about you, but I would do this if I was the only person here. It would be a little weird. (laughs) But I'd do it. Verse 6, going on. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Ouch. This is not good. They're complaining, and so he sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that the many, many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, well, Okay, we have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you. This is good. Confession is good. They recognize their sin. This is not just wimping, you know, it's not just them saying, oh, Okay, okay, yeah, we did wrong. We want to go into, into the promised land anyway. You know, that was back in chapter 14. Now they're saying, Moses, we have sinned against you and the Lord. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, and this is absolutely fascinating, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard, on a pole, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, he didn't, God didn't take the serpents, he removed the snakes. He said, no, there's a process by which you will be healed. And it's by looking up at the serpent on the pole. If any man looks at it, at the bronze serpent, he lived. This is incredible. Now, we're going to have to take time to deal with the story, and we're going to do it a week from Sunday. So there are two stories now. For the next two Sundays, you know what's coming. We're going to look at Moses' failure at Meribah, and a week from Sunday, we're going to look at a message that I'm entitling, Serpent on a Stick. Okay? <laughs> That's what we're going to look at and consider. Two Sundays worth to look forward to, but gang, listen, you know this much, you must understand this much, that the serpent on the pole is a picture of... What? Jesus. Jesus where? On the cross. Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross. Jesus said, John 3.14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in Him, whoever fixes their eyes on Jesus, will live and never die. Will have, Jesus said, eternal life. You might say, okay, I get the pole, it's like the cross, but why is the serpent... Why is the serpent a picture of Jesus? A week from Sunday, we'll answer that question. Verse 10. Now the sons of Israel moved out and camped at Oboth. They journeyed from Oboth and camped at Ayabarim in the wilderness, which is opposite Moab. Moab, again, is Jordan today, to the east. And from there they set out and they camped in Wadi Zered. And from there they journeyed and camped on the other side of Arnon, which is in the wilderness that comes out of the border of the Amorites, 
For the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Now, this continues to be interesting. Watch this. Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, the book of the wars of the Lord, yeah, apparently, Moses wrote this, there was another book. There was a history book that talked about the battles, the great battles of God. Probably was a fascinating book to read. The book of the wars of the Lord. Well, where is that book? I don't know. It's lost in antiquity. It doesn't exist anymore. We don't have it. Well, why not? That would have been great. Listen to me. The Bible is not a history book. The Bible is absolutely accurate to history and gives us wonderful pictures and glimpses into history, but it's not a history book. And so the Lord specifically keeps the book of the wars of the Lord, which probably was a fascinating history book, keeps it out. Why? Because it's not pertinent to our salvation. Every other book in the Bible is. Every book we have here is pertinent to the salvation of those who would study the word and know it. But God has chosen over time. Not man, by the way. Those readers of the Da Vinci Code. Not man. Man did not choose what goes into the scripture. The Holy Spirit has chosen what goes into the Bible over all these years. And the book of the wars of the Lord didn't make it. But reading on, it says this. Wahib in Sufa. Everybody get that? You understand that? Good. Let's move on. And the Wadis of the Arnon. And the slope of the wadis that extend to the site of Ar and leans to the border of Moab. Hmm. Fascinating. What the world does that mean? Now some of your translations may translate Wahib in Sufa, but those are the actual words. And remember, maybe the book of the wars of the Lord didn't make it into the Bible, but this quote from the book of the wars of the Lord did make it into the Bible. Why? It's important. Wahib and Sufa, what does it mean? It means, Wahib means what he did, what he did. Sufa means in the storm. What he did in the storm. What he did in the storm. In the storm, as in lightning, thunder, storming. What he did in the storm. What exactly does this mean? Why is it important? Gang, I believe that what we're looking at here is a reference to the Red Sea crossing. A reference to God, the God of the storm. The God of the struggle. What he did in the storm, Moses is writing. Remember that. Remember, it said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Wahib and Sufa. What he did in the storm and in the wadis of Arnon and the slopes of the wadis that extend to the site of Ar that leans to the border of Moab. In other words, Moses is indicating God is victorious in this place. He leads the people victoriously just as he did in the storm. Just as he did in the storm. How does that apply to me? I'm not going to read it to you right now, but I encourage you to read Psalm 77. Psalm 77, written by a man named Asaph. And Asaph is writing this psalm saying, All night long I cried out to you, God. My eyes were dry. I couldn't even close them. I had wept so hard. My mouth was dry. Sleep evaded me. I cried out and you didn't respond. I cried out and you didn't hear me. I cried out and there was nothing. And my soul is wasting away. And he comes to around verse 11. And he says, you know what? I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember his mighty works and his mighty deeds. I'll remember how he led the people through the Red Sea. I'll remember how with power he led them through the desert in strength. I will remember the ways of the Lord. What are you doing with this, Rick? What he did in the storm. What he did in the storm. When you're not sure that God is hearing you right now. When you're not sure that God's speaking to you. You don't know what he's saying. Remember what he did in the storm. 
Remember what He's done in your life. Remember the mighty works of the deeds. Trace back to something, some great event in history where He led His people. Or some great event in your life where you know that you know that you know He led you what He did in the storm. Now as we finish, three things to jot down, and they are very quick. Trust me on this. I know you don't, but do it anyway. Three things to jot down about how to march forward in the Lord because now the momentum's up. Yes, they had the fiery serpents, but they, they learned something from them. This is a different group now. A different group that the fiery serpents, it was important that they go through that. And, be, and remember the judgment of the Lord and the power of the Lord and also the forgiveness of the Lord. Well, verse 16, it says, They continued to beer, which means well. Where the Lord said to Moses, Assemble the people that I may give them water. This time they're not complaining about no water. The Lord's just saying, I want to make sure they're well uh, well. Not fed, but, I don't know, drinked? Watered. Well watered, thank you, good. <laughs> so I want to make sure they're watered. So verse 17, Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well! They didn't say splish splash, but they said, Spring up, O well! Sing to it! The well which the leaders sank, which the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staff, and from the wilderness they continued to Matana. Now listen, first thing to do when you're marching for the Lord is sing the song of joy. Sing the song of joy. The people are starting to get with it. They've had a battle. They've had a success. They've had a failure with the fiery serpent, but they were saved from it, healed from it. And now, now they're this place of water. And now the exuberance is beginning to flow. I'll tell you what, for all their failures, the Israelites knew how to party. They knew how to celebrate. And now they're singing this song with joy. And they probably were doing like splish flash and little hand movements. I don't know. But they're singing a song of joy. And it is in joy. It is always in the song of joy, worship and praise that you can march in the Lord. And that's what they're doing. I love this. Isaiah 54 verse 1 says, Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. He's saying, Israel, it's hard. Life's going to be tough for you. Anti-Semitism will mar most of your life the first 6,000 years. But man, you sing. You sing because your offspring will be vastly greater. The sons of the barren one, of the desolate one, will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman. Shout for joy, or in some translations, sing for joy. I love the story in Acts chapter 16. You may recall it. Paul and Silas stuffed down there in prison. They're in the stocks in Philippi. They caused a big problem. Paul did that every town he went to, caused a big problem. But now they're in jail. They're bound. And it's barren times. And it's thirsty times. But long about midnight, Paul and Silas busted out in song. They just start singing. Now, imagine that scene for a minute. Say you're a prisoner two or three cell blocks down the road. And you're in your stocks. And most of the night all you're hearing is just, oh, oh moaning. Oh. Someone clanking their cup against the metal. Let me, I'm thirsty. Give me some food. Oh. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you start to hear a song. And it gets louder. First thought, you're thinking, okay, someone's lost it. <laughs> Another one's gone, loopy. But it gets louder and louder. And the more you listen, the more you hear their words of praise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, sings Paul. And then Silas repeats, Praise Him, all creatures here below. And they're just praising God 
in the sacks, in the prison. Their song wells up. They're singing the song of joy. And gang, when the seasons are spiritually dry, it's the best thing to do. You might not feel it. You might feel in chains to something or some situation. But the best thing you can do to march forward is sing the song of joy because, gang, God loves a good song. They busted out in song and God busted them out of prison. It's a great story, Acts chapter 16. Read that on your own time as well. Well, the children of Israel, again, know how to complain, but they know how to celebrate. The second thing to do is you march for the Lord, not only sing the song of joy, but swing the sword. Swing the sword. Look at verse 21. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn off into field or vineyard. We will not drink water from your well. Same thing they said to the Edomites. We will go by the king's highway until we pass through your border. But Sihon would not permit Israel to pass through his border. Now gang, they had heard about Israel by now. They knew these people were coming. Word had passed on into the Middle East from what had happened in Egypt. From the entire, you think the entire army of Pharaoh of Egypt being perished, wiped out in the Red Sea wasn't heard about where they were going? No, these armies knew and they were ready. And so it tells us Sihon would not permit them to pass through. Verse 23, he gathered all his people and went out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. But watch this. This time, they don't turn tail and run. It says Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from Arnon to the Jabbok. As far as the sons of Ammon, from the border of the sons of Ammon, or for the border, was Jazer. Now Israel took all these cities, and Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in her villages. That's awesome. Swing the sword. Don't turn tail and run. Now you fight. Don't shrink back. Hebrews 10.39 We are not of those who shrink back to destruction. No, we go forward in the strength of the Lord, swinging the sword. That's the way to go forward in the Lord. Singing the songs of praise, songs of joy, swinging the sword. Hebrews 4.12, for the sword of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is the sword. Ephesians 6.17, Paul says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And now Israel, and this is exciting for me, I'm reading this going, hey, they're starting to look more like a host than a bunch of slaves. They're starting to stand up. They're starting to fight for the Lord. Singing the song of joy, swinging the sword. Uh, another way to sing, by the way, this is, would be 1B, so there's only three things, but there's 1A and 1B. This is 1B. Singing the song of victory. The song of victory. Watch this, it's great. Where are we? I can tell you it's great when I find it. Verse 25. There it is. So Israel took the cities of all these cities and they lived in the cities of the Amorites. Verse 26. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon the king of the Amorites who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Now listen. Therefore, those who use Proverbs say, verse 27, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. So let the city of Sihon be established. For a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the town of Sihon. It devoured Ar of Moab, the dominant heights of Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are ruined, O people of Shamash, for he has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sihon. But we have cast them down. Heshbon is ruined as far as Debon. And then we have laid waste even to Nopha, which reaches to Mediba. You read that and you go, huh? What's that? Well, listen, gang. This song here, 
this victory song, Moses co-ops it. This is a victory song, gang, that belonged, it belonged to Sihon and the Amorites. It was their victory song over Moab. They crushed Moab and the Amorites began to sing this song. And I think it's probably, you know, on the Billboard's top 20, at least, if not the number one song for the Amorites. This was their song, their victory song. And they sang this after crushing the Moabites. And you know what Moses does here? It's great. He takes their song for Israel. He applies it for the Israelites. And I'm not sure about this, but it's here. I think the Israelites began singing this song as a taunt to Sihon and the Amorites. They took their top 20 song and made it an Israelite song, began to sing it, began to praise with it. A song of victory. Hey, it didn't belong to them. They didn't deserve the victory, but they got it. They beat out the Amorites, and now they're singing this victory song. They're using it as a tool against the Amorites to taunt them, also against the Moabites to intimidate them. Because what they're saying is, hey, we just wiped out the Amorites who you remembered wiped out you. I've been on a basketball team when I was in high school, and I always loved beating the team that beat another team that we were going to play later. Because when you came up against that team, they're like, huh, they beat the guys that beat us. They must be pretty good. And so here's Israel, having beaten the Amorites, they're singing the Amorite victory song over Moab against the Amorites as a taunt and against Moab as an intimidation. And I think it's great. And it reminds me of a time in our church's history, recent history, where a lot of the beloved hymns, the hymns that we have so carefully kept over the years, that some want to make sure are sung the correct way and are not defiled or violated, but sung beautifully the way they were intended, many of those hymns, gang, were pub drinking songs originally. Some of the most wonderful hymns that we sing Christian songs that still remain today some smart Christian guy heard a drinking song and rewrote the words and used the drinking song for a victory song of praise that's awesome and that's what Israel's doing here last thing to jot down number three or four if you want it to be four things that's okay with me submit submit to the spirit's lead verse 31 thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites they're not in, the Canaan, in Canaan's land yet they're right on the edge They're not in the area that God promised to Abraham, but they're close, living in the land of the Amorites. And Moses, verse 32, sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. They are marching on to Zion. And then they turned and went up by the way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, went out with all his people for battle at Edrai. Og was a big guy, by the way. You'll find out later. A a rather large, imposing man. And they went up against him, but the Lord, verse 34, The Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand, and all his people, and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. And so, verse 35, they killed him, and his sons, and all his people, until there was no remnant left him, and they possessed his land. Now that begin, brings us to the end of the teaching. I want to say one more thing to you, and you got to hear this, because this is the thing that just popped in my head like an hour before I came here tonight. Think about this chapter and what they went through. And we see an actual progression, a change in Israel, a very unique change. They started out based off with Edom, and their spirits failed. And they went around. 
Miriam died just prior to that. Aaron died. After that happens, they go up against Arad and they conquer it. They win. But then a little backsliding, the problem with the bronze serpent. But after all of that, Sihon of the Amorites, Og now, the king of Bashan, we know the Moabites eventually in the next chapter, they're going to be shaking in their boots as Israel comes into the land. Now they're on the offensive. What changed? What is different for Israel now? Why suddenly are these people who were struggling and murmuring and complaining, why now are they suddenly turning into this host this host of God, this, this powerful army that is something to be reckoned with? Why are they now on the offensive? I think, think about this. Miriam and Aaron have died. No offense to either one, but they were baggage. They were old school. They were Israel of Egypt. And they did things throughout the time with Moses that caused problems. But their baggage is now removed. The last remaining remnants, aside from Moses himself, are now history. Oh, Joshua and Caleb, you remember them. They'll go into the promised land. They'll lead into the promised land because they were part of the solution, not the problem. But see what happens here in these two chapters. Again, they failed at Edom. Miriam, Aaron, they die off. And then suddenly something begins to happen for Israel. They conquer Arad. Taste of victory. And it tastes sweet. And they start to feel a little more, well, a little stronger. A little more confident. And then we have the problem with the bronze serpent, which, by the way, is not the problem that we think it is. Because in that situation with the bronze serpent, when they came face to face with that serpent, that picture of themselves being bitten, that picture of death, that picture of their own failure, they recognized their failure, confessed it, and they were saved. And now on the other side of it, they take out Sihon, they take out Og, and they are now a marching host. What is it that has changed? Gang, they are now a people who are on the offensive. James chapter 4 verse 7 says the following Resist the devil and he will flee from you James doesn't say Back off from the devil Go around He doesn't say Oh, uh, Whenever you see the devil Run, <laughs> run away He says run from temptation But what he says there James 4 7 Resist the devil Stand up to him there is something, and this has just been brewing in my head lately. You're probably going to hear more and more of this over the next few weeks here. But I keep thinking about how Christianity and how we oftentimes as Christians will back down from the attack of an atheist or the attack of an agnostic or the attack of someone saying, oh, you can't do that. You can't wear a Jesus t-shirt in your school. How dare you talk to me about Jesus? I would just for once love a Christian to go, how dare I? Because I love you and let me tell you some more. Let me tell you about Jesus. Resist the devil. And this is key. This is absolutely key in our Christian lives. Resist the devil. And what will he do? He will flee from you. He will, hang on a second, Larry. I'm on a roll here. He will flee from you. He will run from you. If you will stand up and fight him. He is a coward. The devil is. Yes, he's a roaring lion. Seeking whom he can devour, but gain he devours. What does a lion devour? Lions devour animals that are already hurt or limping. Lions typically 
are scavengers and don't like to go up against a strong animal unless they're in a pack. He's seeking whom he can devour. But James says, resist him. Fight back. Take the word of God to the enemy. Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. In other words, take on the gates of hell. Let's be a people who in this world are preaching the word of God unashamedly, with confidence, with boldness, because, gang, and watch, you see it with Israel, for every victory you have more strength for the next battle. Every time you take on Satan, he gets more frightened of you. And James guarantees, the Bible guarantees, he will flee from you. Here's a key. If you want Satan out of your life, fight him. If you want him to take control of your life, cower. Get wimpy. Close the Bible quickly and tuck it away at work so no one sees that it's there. And Satan will go, ah, so we got you on the run. And he'll be back. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that's the key. And that's why I believe we see a different Israel at the end of chapter 1 than we saw at the beginning of chapter 20. They are now ready to fight. Just hold that thought just one more second, Larry. Let me pray and we'll get back to you. Okay? God, thank you so much for your word. God, make us strong and bold and courageous and ready to walk out with your name on our lips. Preaching courageously, not afraid of flack that we might take for even persecution, Lord. I pray that you will give us the strength to just say, bring it on as we stand for Jesus in this world. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Larry, yes. Shoot. I totally agree, but the first